everybody. It's great to see you here this morning and welcome online if you are joining us uh, on the live stream. Blessed are the Sydney homeowners, for they shall not have to pay outrageous rent. Blessed are those who get 99 ATAR in the HSC, for they shall inherit whatever unicorns they want. Blessed are those who get hitched, for they will no longer have to go to weddings as a single. Blessed are those with intelligent, well-adjusted children, for after spending a fortune on tutoring, they will be a pride and joy and source of financial security for their parents in their old age. Well, we might have a giggle at this version of Jesus' famous blessings, uh, but even if we don't want to admit it, uh, I think we believe at least some of those things. Um, certainly, that's what the world believes, isn't it? And I think we struggle as uh, God's people not to be taken in by that same value system. But what Jesus said is very different, isn't it? We're very familiar with the blessings that Johnny read out for us. And the words probably don't strike us as strange or countercultural because we are so familiar with them. But if you were there with Jesus on that day when he said those blessings, you wouldn't have thought, ah, that's the way that it's meant to go. Because Jesus' words were unexpected. His kingdom was unexpected. It was radically different to the way people thought it should be. If you were one of the crowd or even one of Jesus' disciples, some of these things would have made sense. Peacemakers being blessed, the, uh, the pure in heart being blessed. Yeah, that sounds right. But then other things like being poor in spirit, mourning and having God's blessing. Well, those things just don't add up. Surely that goes against the signs of God's blessing, being wealth and security and happiness, doesn't it? But the message of these blessings is that those who are blessed aren't the rich and powerful. They're not the people our culture considers blessed, the successful, the smart, the secure, the stable, but it's those despised by the world. And Jesus says they receive what the world looks for, but ultimately will not find. What are the things we look for in our world today? Well, if we're totally honest, even if we don't chase after being a millionaire and driving a, a BMW and owning a yacht, we still look for security and satisfaction of our needs in money. And we all desire recognition to be someone and to be respected for it. As well as that, many of us are plagued by guilt, a sense of guilt for past things that we've done. And we long for forgiveness, redemption and mercy. And pain of some kind is something that we all face for at one time or another. And perhaps you're walking through that now. Loneliness or physical pain, bitterness or disillusion. When that's us, we want comfort. We want relief from pain. Jesus' message of his kingdom is that these things we seek in the world cannot be found here. They are only ultimately found in the kingdom. 
And so if any of these things are what you want out of life, satisfaction, recognition, mercy, comfort, then listen to Jesus' words today because they are for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your kingdom is an unexpected kingdom. We thank you that it is an unexpected kingdom that uh, turns upside down the values of this world. And the reason for that is that you are an unexpected king. You are a king who laid aside your crown so that we could have life. And we thank you that you are a king who is merciful and you are a king who died for us. And we pray that as we listen to these words that we might be driven with a new passion to want to follow in the footsteps of you, our king. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Just realised I forgot my clicker. Before we look at the blessings in more detail, just a word about how do we read these? How do we understand them? And I think one of the biggest clues that we get is by looking at who Jesus is speaking to. So verse 1 says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit. Hey, I got the, we got the wrong... Um, got the wrong slide. That's better. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. So there were crowds of people and Jesus saw the crowds and came uh, to them. But it was his disciples who actually came up to him. And these words are primarily for the disciples. Jesus is talking about the kingdom of heaven to those who are already in the kingdom. And that's crucial for understanding the blessings. We might be tempted to take them as kind of general truths about the way that the world works, a bit like a Jesus version of karma. If you are humble, you'll be rewarded with the earth. If you are merciful, you'll receive mercy back, kind of like a moral code that, that rewards good conduct. Perhaps Jesus is showing the benefits of leave, living a good life. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. He isn't giving a list of how-tos to get into the kingdom because that would make it a version of salvation by works where we are saved by what we do, by being good people. But we know that that flies in the face of everything else in the Bible that tells us that we save not by what we do, but by Jesus dying on the cross for us and that we're powerless to save ourselves. So Jesus here is speaking to people who are already in the kingdom, who are already saved. And Jesus is telling his disciples these blessings for two reasons. One, he is describing what those in the kingdom are like as a kind of a heart check for his disciples so that they can examine their own hearts and ask, am I poor in the Spirit? Am I merciful? Am I living in a way that is fitting for someone who is in the kingdom? And secondly, he's reassuring them that living this way is worth it. 
living this way is worth it. The rewards of being part of God's kingdom. It's an encouragement to say following Jesus is worth the cost. They're not missing out. In the end, they actually get what the world misses out on. We've got three points today, and they are basically groupings of blessings that I'll explain as we go. Number one, blessed are the poor in spirit. Two, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And three, blessed are the peacemakers. So let's kick off. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Follow along with me. I'll have the Bible verses on the screen, but you might like to have your uh, Bibles open or your Bible on the phone. Uh, It will be good to follow on as we go. Verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Who are the poor in spirit? Perhaps the best description of that is a story that Jesus tells later on about a tax collector and a Pharisee who pray at the temple. Uh, Don't turn to it, um, but just listen. Listen to Jesus' description. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven But he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you that this man, rather than the Pharisee, went home justified, made right before God. The tax collector knew he was poor before God. He has nothing to bring to the table. He knew his character and his actions don't make him right with God. They just don't stand up. He knew he was a sinner. All he could do was cry out to God to have mercy on him. And he was like those described in the second blessing as well. Blessed are those who mourn. He mourned. From the context, hot on the hills, hills, hills of verse 3, we can be pretty sure that mourning here, Jesus is talking about mourning because of his spiritual poverty and especially mourning because of his sin, being genuinely sad and repentant at how we turn away from God. And the third blessing for the meek is related to these as well. Who are the meek? It's a funny word. We don't often use it these days. But another word that means the same thing that we're more familiar with is humble. It means pretty much the same thing. To be humble doesn't mean to go around with your head bowed and being a doormat to everyone. Being humble means to look at yourself with sober judgment and see yourself as God sees you. Not thinking that you have no value, not having no self-esteem. We absolutely have value because our value comes from God. Knowing that, that that is the way that he sees us. 
as Paul says, to uh, being humble is not to think of yourself more highly than you ought. The tax collector was humble. The opposite of humility is what the Pharisee was like. It's being proud and arrogant, looking down on others. Well, Jesus comforts his disciples by saying that the poor in spirit have the kingdom of heaven. Notice that most of these rewards are related to the characteristic of those who are blessed. For example, the poor become rich because they have the kingdom. They become rich beyond all measure. Uh, So to the meek, they also inherit the earth. And I want to point out something else from these two verses. Have a look on the screen. So verse 3 says, There's is the kingdom of heaven. That's present tense. They already have it now. But then verse 5, the meek will inherit the earth. That's future tense, right? So we have both the present tense and the future tense. And those verses bring out the nature of the kingdom. We see the kingdom now in part We enjoy it and experience it now in part as God's people, as God's church. But we will experience it in its fullness when Jesus returns and brings in the new creation. So that's why they're both aspects to the kingdom being described here by Jesus. God's kingdom is present with his people in the church, but the fullness of his rule over the whole of creation, is yet to come. So blessed are the poor in spirit. That's designed as a heart check for us. If you follow Jesus, you are in the kingdom. And Jesus wants to ask, do you live in a way that shows him as your king? Are you poor in spirit? Spiritual poverty is different to physical poverty, but they're they're related. Jesus gave many warnings about the dangers of wealth because wealth has a tendency to blind us to our spiritual need. The rich have a tendency to be self-reliant and self-confident because of their money. And I think that's a danger for us too, friends. Because we're actually a pretty middle-class church. The majority of us have a professional white-collar job or a uni student studying to become some kind of professional that brings or will bring a pretty comfortable income. It also brings status and respect. It can sometimes be hard for us when we have the capacity to control our physical environment and when we have financial security, to see our spiritual poverty, to see the reality as it really is. Um, Now, I think for most of you, you're actually pretty competent at getting through life, hey? Like, you're pretty good at um, navigating most things in life. Uh, Even coming to church when you're active in ministry 
um, you're pretty competent at serving, doing the things you are for God. And it can be easily to subtly be quite pleased with ourselves and about how we're doing with God because of that. But the reality is that we are all like the tax collector. And when we truly understand how empty our hands are before God, then we can truly understand the richness of the gospel. We can truly understand the power of forgiveness and we can walk with hearts of gratitude for what God has done for us. Second point, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Jesus goes on, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Uh, I think these three actually go together, like, like the last uh, point that we saw. Verses 7 and 8 flesh out what it means to be righteous, to be merciful, to be pure in heart. And put together with the previous blessings, being poor in spirit, we see that the righteousness that Jesus is talking about is the opposite to that of the Pharisee in the story. He was self-righteous, and then Pharisees in general, uh, as they encounter Jesus in the Gospels, they're self-righteous. They looked down on others. They were about rule-keeping and legalism rather than mercy. Now, I just want to spend a little bit of time digging into what it means to be merciful in particular. Because right through Scripture, we see being merciful as inseparably intertwined with being right with God, with righteousness. Um, the Old Testament prophets in particular talk about that. And one verse that beautifully sums up the priority that God puts on mercy is found in one of the prophets, Micah. Um, Micah verses 6 to 8. You may, may have heard this verse. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. And that's a message that's consistent throughout the whole Old Testament and the New Testament. And it flows from the fact that God has been merciful to us. So in response, he expects us to show mercy to others. As we can see from this verse in Micah, mercy is tied together with acting justly, which is making sure people are being treated fairly. It involves making sure the innocent are protected and that the guilty are punished. And it also involves a wider sense of social justice, looking after the marginalised and the vulnerable. In the New Old Testament, that's particularly tied to a response to what God has done in delivering the people out of slavery. So because you've been delivered from slavery, make sure you don't treat others as if they're slaves. That kind of idea. And Jesus has even stronger words to say in the New Testament. If we want to be forgiven, we need to treat others as God has treated us and show forgiveness, which is closely tied to the idea of showing mercy to others. 
when we understand how merciful God has been towards us, we are able to give mercy in return to others. When we truly understand the gospel, that Jesus died for us when we were lost and hopeless, when we were dead in our sin, when we are poor in spirit, we are free to be merciful to others. Now, I think if you're a believer, you understand all that. I understand that. But to be honest, I find that hard to live out. And I think a reason for that is that I'm insulated from people who are suffering. Uh, many years ago, I went to a conference in, in Manila in the Philippines. And driving through downtown Manila, um, pretty much right next to these shiny high-rise buildings full of um, upmarket shops and restaurants, there's a sh huge shanty town uh, in, the, in the middle of town with people living in makeshift houses made of cardboard. I think it was my first encounter with genuine, desperate poverty. It was in my face and I found it very confronting. But in Roselands, where I live, here in Sydney, I'm not confronted by poverty. Or really anyone with very obvious, desperate needs. Now, I'm sure that behind closed doors, there is plenty of suffering around me. But it's hidden. It's hidden behind nice middle-class houses in a quite orderly, nice neighbourhood. And friends, I want to suggest that at SWEC, I think we, we uh, face a challenge as a church to express community, uh, sorry, to express mercy to our wider community. Uh, I, mean, I mean, beyond ourselves not just the sweat community. Please don't think that I'm pointing the finger because this is something that I struggle with too. But I think we all perhaps struggle with it because, as I said earlier, we are a very middle-class church and we're not often confronted with people with desperate needs, with, with people with mental health issues, with refugees struggling to navigate the system, with homeless people, etc. If we are serious about wanting to be salt and light to our community, uh, I think there's room for us to think about doing more uh, as a church community in showing mercy, in expressing God's love in practical ways. Third point, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Again, this last group of blessings kind of naturally belong together. Jesus is talking about being a particular type of peacemaker. Uh, it's not primarily talking about someone who negotiates an end to wars, although it might involve that. It's primarily talking about making peace with God. It's the work of the gospel. 
It's the work of bringing people to a restored relationship with God, which also brings about peace between other people as well. We know that's what Jesus is talking about from verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness. And then verse 11, we are blessed when we are persecuted because of me, Jesus said. So it's when we introduce people to Jesus that we are persecuted. Christians who are persecuted are persecuted because of the gospel. Because the gospel message is an offence to the world. Because when we are a peacemaker for Jesus, we come with an unpopular message that people are sinners who need to repent and Jesus is their only hope. It may be an unpopular message, but it's also the best way that we can love people, to be a peacemaker. And it also ties back to being merciful. See, mercy has two aspects to it. It's, it's, um, it's shown in practical ways, which we were talking about a moment ago, but we are also merciful when we have enough compassion on those who are lost that we make the effort to share Jesus with them. Because that's people's greatest need, isn't it? It's an enormous privilege, friends, to do that. It's the most significant work we can do. We become co-workers with God. And Jesus expresses the significance of that work by telling who we become, verse 9. The peacemakers become children of God, sons and daughters of God. Remember that Jesus and God announced that Jesus was, the, was his beloved son at his baptism back in chapter 2. Well, he is saying here that we become like that too. We don't become the Messiah like Jesus was, but we do have that closeness of a relationship with the Father. And verse 10, like Jesus, we also inherit the kingdom. We become co-heirs of it with Jesus, sharing in his inheritance. That's how valuable we are, friends, in God's eyes. We are his family. What a motivation to be a part of God's work in being a peacemaker. And being a peacemaker is more than just seeing individual people restored in their relationship with God. I say just because it's, that is an enormous thing in itself, isn't it? But being a peacemaker is also about communities and relationships with each other. It's about the restoration of wholeness, making things right, firstly between us and God and then between other people. That's what Paul talks about in the book of Ephesians. We, we won't look at specific verses, but in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says that when Jesus died on the cross, he destroyed the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile. And that can be extended to any, um, the, the barrier that exists between any group of people, all groups of people. All that has been destroyed by the gospel. Paul goes on to say that God's wisdom is shown 
to the world in the way that different people are brought together in the church through the gospel. When the world looks at the church and sees people standing side by side who would never normally even give each other the time of day, never even speak to each other, that shows the power of the gospel. And I want to just finish off with a word about how we can be a church of peacemakers. Now, I know that many of you make a real effort to be sharing the gospel at work, uh, at uni, uh, with your old school friends, etc., family. And that's so encouraging. I heard Ryan's story uh, about how he had an opportunity to do that at work. That's so encouraging. Keep that up. And we need to keep reminding and encouraging each other to do that. But I also want to suggest that there's a great opportunity for us to think about how we as a church community can be actively connecting with other communities uh, beyond our friendship networks, beyond those in our kind of natural friendship circles, and especially with people who are different to us. That's part of our church vision, isn't it, to Uh, to be reaching out to other migrant communities who are different to us, culturally, racially different. Because as we do that, it's a visible, powerful demonstration of the work of the gospel. To work peace in us so that we can bring peace to others who are different to us. Uh, we heard one example uh, of that is the peace tent in Lakemba uh, that, that Hamish led us in prayer for uh, during, during Ramadan. Uh, it's called the peace tent for that reason because it, it relates back to what Jesus is teaching about. As we take the gospel to others, we bring a message to peace. Uh, it, it's not an us versus them thing. We're not looking to... Um, We're not looking to win an argument with our Muslim brothers and sisters. We're looking to build bridges of peace and ultimately to introduce people to Jesus, uh, in the case of the peace tent, through Bible storytelling. Now, of course, that's not the only thing that we can do as a church. And I want to encourage us to put our heads together and think creatively about looking beyond ourselves outside our church circles, outside our friendship circles, beyond our comfort zone for the sake of the gospel. And when we are peacemakers, we are blessed. We who are sons and daughters of God. Jesus turns the values of the world upside down. It's not the Sydney homeowners who are really rich. The poor in spirit have the kingdom of heaven. We don't find ultimate satisfaction in getting married or having a happy family, as good as those things are. It's when we are hungry and thirsty for righteousness that we will be satisfied. As we live that way, we follow in the footsteps of our king who lay aside his crown so that he could be Emmanuel, the God with us, who died for us. Friends, he is a king worth following. 
And His is a kingdom worth living for. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for these radical words uh, that begin the Sermon on the Mount. Father, we pray that we would hear these words not as kind of um, words that appear on a fridge magnet that, that we're so used to, but radical words that uh, show how surprising and how different, how radically different your kingdom is. We pray, Father, that we would be people who are fit for the kingdom, that we would be people who long for comfort and riches and blessing, not in this world, but in your kingdom. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.